Wake Up World. You are now tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I'm your host, Devon Pouncey. First off, I'd like to thank you all, uh, the listeners, for all of the support we've gotten in the first two episodes of the podcast. We had two dynamite guests in sports journalist Malika Andrews, as well as personal trainer Casey Trujeque. He is the personal trainer of Alan Crabb of the Portland Trailblazers. For those who may have missed those two episodes or even listened to those via SoundCloud, I'm proud to announce that our podcast is now up and running on iTunes, and I would love for all of you to subscribe to the Wake Up and Win podcast. Subscription is free, so you really have no excuse not to subscribe and support what we have going on here. With the podcast industry still growing, I've gotten a lot of questions about how to subscribe and what way to go about that. So if you're an iPhone user, you can either go to the iTunes store or you can go to the podcast app on your home screen and type in Wake Up and Win with Devon Pouncey and you can subscribe there. As I said before, subscription is free. And if you enjoy using SoundCloud and if you would like to continue listening to the podcast via SoundCloud, you can subscribe to Wake Up and Win and that is the name of our channel there. So today we got episode three going, and now that all of that promo is out of the way, I'm very excited because we have another Dynamite guest in studio with us today. This young lady is a Native American journalist as well as an activist. She is the editor of the recently released book, The Edge of Morning, Native Voices Speak for the Bear's Ears, which we will allow her to sort of break down for us as much as she's willing to. She may leave some for you all to uh, go and purchase. (laughs) Uh, and also she is here. She lives here in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. She lives here in Portland, Oregon. So without further ado, we have Jacqueline Keeler in the studio. Jackie, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. So first off, can you give us like some tribal history of what tribe you come from and kind of just tell us about the origins of your tribe? Yeah, um, I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation, which is one of the largest Uh, Native nations in the country. We have a population of 350,000 and uh, we have a land base the size of Ireland and are larger than 22 member states of the UN. So we are really a nation within uh, the United States and uh, a a pre-existing, persisting Native nation. Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah. So you, to start off, you went and protested on Standing Rock if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I am. Um, I actually, um, well, my, my dad's family, my grandmother's family used to live on Standing Rock oh, wow. um, at Wakpala. And my dad is is actually Yankton, Dakota. Okay. The Lakota, Dakota people are also known as the, the Sioux, the Great Sioux Nation. And so Standing Rock is one of the reservations or sort of a remnant of the Great Sioux Nation. Okay. And so... Um, and uh, so that was really very, very cool to go back there and... Uh, I meet so many people. I, I actually ended up having a lot of relatives up there. And uh, and so, um, but yeah, to me, I, I write about it because it, to me, it represents the reemergence of the Ocheti Shakoi, you know, the Great Sioux Nation. And um, which, um, if the treaty was honored, the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, they would have, their land base would be the size of Great Britain up there. So it's quite a bit of land that is, uh, that is right now, as you can see, militarily occupied by uh, the United States, which certainly the, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests made visible, you know, the, the military nature of the occupation of North Dakota 
on uh, Lakota, Dakota lands. Wow, that's very interesting. Were there any athlete activists that you may have seen doing work up there or that you may have even interacted with while you were up there? Um, yeah, I... Um, I had, not while I was there, I would say. Um, I know that there are, there's a, um, I think his name is Bronson Koenig. He's a... Um, the, the, from Wisconsin. Yes. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he's Ho-Chunk and he's, or some people, they used to be called Winnebago tribe up there. And, and they, um, yeah, he was really outspoken about his support for, for Standing Rock. Cool. So. Cool. That's nice. So give, uh, you're an activist and given the political climate with Trump, pretty much going forward with the pipelines out there. What would kind of be your message to the activists or to other people that you may have pro- may or may not have protested with and going forward and kind of staying strong and really building off, building off of what you all started? Because I feel like there was a lot of unity that came amongst the Native people with this incident going on. And how do you like continue to build all, off that, although the political climate may not necessarily be in your favor. Yeah, it is pretty scary because, I mean, what they were doing was nonviolent direct action. And, and you don't, you wonder, like, with the Trump administration, how effective that would be, like, how responsive he would be to sh- being shamed. Do you know I mean? Right. I, I would say probably not much. And, um, and of course, the state of North Dakota was pretty outrageous in its behavior. You know, I think we started calling them North Korea because they were just wow. so incredibly <laughs> abusive and uh, and using state violence against defenseless people. And so I first I would like to, you know, I, w- I really would love to thank everyone who came because I was such a beautiful thing. I mean, when my when my elders talk about what happened there, they always go back to the fact that this is a prayer. This is a prayer that was begun um Many, very long ago. I mean, wounded knee often comes up, the first wounded knee in 1890. And my grandmother's um, oldest uncle was there. And and just, uh, you know, that, that that was a prayer that was begun and that prayer was carried, carried through time and space. And then it became realized here. And when we our prayer went out, our relatives answered that prayer uh, from all the four directions. And so all those people who came, they came in answer to a prayer of people and um, for justice, for the right to live their lives as they wish to, you know, not to be forced to give that up uh, for a colonial state. And so I think that that's something that Dakota and Lakota, that name, it means allies. And so I feel like that all those people who came, they, they became Dakota and Lakota. They became our allies. They made themselves known as such. And for that, we're really thankful, and it just shows the power of that prayer um, that was done, and uh, that it doesn't end not even with that massacre. And the last time, all our um, the Lakota Lakota people are composed of seven different um, camp. They call them council fires, and that's the name for um, our. We call ourselves is Ocheti Shakowing, which means the seven council fires. And and so my dad's tribe, the Yanktons, the Yonktowans, are one of those council fires. And um, and the the uh, Tatuan, which the Lakota are, are another one of those council fires. And but um, so this was the first time in over 150 years that we had wow. camped together as the seven council fires. Wow. And and that the Historic. yeah. So the it was you know last time was at the Battle of Little Bighorn, right? And we fought Custer. And um, but the council fires go all the way to the Great Lakes. The Dakota people, them in, um, in Minnesota. 
and they were most of the council fires are there. That was where most of the population originally was, but they were decimated by genocide with the um, coming of the Americans. So um, that's why the, there are more now in in South Dakota. But uh, but yeah, it was um, it was a really beautiful thing, and I think that I was just I wrote a piece in Medium at that site, and and I you know it was about how um, when I was there in December. It was like in the middle of winter. It was so cold. It was like negative 23 degrees. And we had to keep our faces covered just because it was so cold. Right. And, um, but it felt like, it felt, reminded me of that um, Empire Strikes Back where they're on the, the, the um, ice plat hoth. Right. And we, I felt like we were doing that. We were challenging the empire, you know, and um, on the edge of empire. And in that, in that movie, there's that scene where, where they have to take, they cut open that animal that tauntaun and you know take refuge in it to survive the cold and uh and in our dakota lakota stories we have stories like that where people would take refuge inside the buffalo you know to survive a um a blizzard and but what would happen was that that buffalo would come back to life while the person was in it and they'd be walking around carrying the person inside them and to me that's sort of what has happened is that the um that the buffalo is the center of the universe in our in the Dakota Lakota culture, and there the buffalo um, has come back to life, and we are inside it. Right. That's the prayer, and it's walking, and that's what's happening right now. It's walking in all the four directions, and that prayer is being carried. And um, and in the spring, you know, um, when the calves are birthed, then we will see what we have, and and more things will come. Wow, that's that's deep. So 150 years. Yeah. Since you all have come together. So do you do any work in kind of, like I said, keeping that going? Obviously, you are a writer. You're a journalist. So you pretty much keep at it as far as. Well, it's like when you're a child and and I think every, you know, I suppose this happens in other families, too. But for Native families, you know, there's a point where the parents have to tell the children what this country is really all about. Right. And um, and. You know, when I was in kindergarten, my mom had to tell me before I went to school, she told me, you know, don't listen to what they tell you. I'm going to teach you our history. And and then, um, and then I really began to understand then that this country was founded on um, a great uh, injustice against my own people, right. my own ancestors, and, and, and the continuing injustice. I mean, I think that um, what Standing Rock really showed us, um, showed Americans, is that this is a colony. It's still a colony. It's a colony uh, without portfolio in the sense that it doesn't have a homeland, you know, and uh, it may have fought a, a war against um, its homeland, Great Britain, but it doesn't actually have a homeland of its own. It occupies other people's lands. And, and like any colony, its goal is to basically economically exploit those other people's lands, those other nations, and take all of their wealth and transport it back to the top 1%. And this is how a colony operates. This is the very nature of it. And so people are often surprised when the U.S. operates this way or Canada operates this way. Yet it's the very nature of the beast. That is what it does. That's what it's built to do. And and you have a, um, someone, a Trump-like person who's elected, and he epitomizes that colonial system. You know, he's the absolute epitome of a colonial system built on white supremacy and on oppression and, you know, economic opportunism. And so I think that's the difference between being a people, being a nation, 
And to me, a people and nation are grounded in a creation story which ties them directly to the land. And for the Lakota, Dakota people that came when uh, the white buffalo calf woman came to us and brought us the pipe, the chaumpa, and, um, and the seven sacred ceremonies, including the sweat lodge and the sun dance. And, and that's what made us Lakota, Dakota. That, that my grandfather my, uh, used to tell me that that was the point where we, we, became, we became Dakota. Before that, we weren't. And this is, you'll see this in every people. The Navajo people have a similar story. And, um, and where that pipeline is, the Dakota Access Pipeline, when I was interviewing um, uh, tribal councilmen from the Stanyu Rock Sioux tribe, they told me that their people believe that that's where the white buffalo calf woman appeared to our people. So it's a sacred place. It's a, it should be really um, a UNESCO World Heritage Site because that's where the, peop- the Dakota Lakota people first became who they were. And, uh, but with the American people, we don't, this, this country doesn't have that kind of story. And this country is about everyone getting their own. And, um, and so it's, uh, it's not the story of a real true people. Right. Not a set culture. <laughs> no <Yeah>. culture. <laughs> so you're also an activist against Native American masketry. Yes. Uh, two teams that immediately... Excuse me. Two teams that immediately come to mind for me are the Cleveland Indians, yep. who just played in the World Series in the last yes. World Series. <laughs> and also, I won't even say their name, but the national football team in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain really what your stance is, your general stance is when it comes to Native American masketry? And also, kind of tell us about your experiences protesting either in Cleveland or in D.C. and in other places when you have to deal with uh, intoxicated fans <laughs> and people who love sports and may want, and usually people come for the love of the game and for the fun of the sport, but there's obviously something much more important that needs to be exposed when it comes to Native American masketry. So how has that kind of interaction been with you and the fans? Yeah, it's really interesting. I was actually born in Cleveland, and um, so I wrote a piece for Salon a few years back called, uh, well, they titled it, My Life as a Cleveland Indian. Right. And, <laughs> uh, and my parents protested when they were young people, you know, in college. And, um, and, and so it's sort of, you know, it's been part of my life, you know, um, although we moved away from Cleveland um, when I was very young. And, and I did have the opportunity to go back a couple of years ago and protest at opening day, which has happened. There's a protest happening today as well right now in Cleveland. And, um, and I got to meet the American community there and that was really wonderful. And, but I, um, I was actually really glad I didn't have to grow up with Chief Wahoo around my life all the time. It's just by far the most grotesque caricature of native people. I mean, we did protest in front of Nike world headquarters here in Beaverton, the native community here. And we asked them to stop selling Chief Wahoo. And, um, and they sent, they, they wrote me a, um, a press release where they said that, um, they couldn't do that because if they renegotiated the contract with the Cleveland MLB team, they'd have to renegotiate their contracts with every MLB team. And they also claimed that, well, this is an ongoing conversation in Cleveland and the people seem okay with it. So, you know, that's not really our thing to say, but but I rep- I responded that by their lot by their very logic they would actually you know if a community decided to have Sambo kind of 
you know, caricature as their um, mascot, then, you know, they would put a Nike swoosh next to that and say it's okay. And we know that that they would never do that. Um, And it just shows that they are willing to do it to make money. And because the Native community, because of genocide, is so small, it's it doesn't register on the national level. And and so that's sort of yeah, going back to a place like Ohio where the tribes were removed, where genocide was really total, you know, um, it's in places like this that it seems like it's more likely to grow. You know, I mean, it's chilling to go back east and go to places where there are no tribes. There are no native communities left. They were removed, they were killed off. You know, and um, and all people know are these stereotypes, these caricatures, and it's um, you know, it's you know, you think that that could have been your tribe. It's like like you're, if you're Jewish and you go back to the Ukraine and you visit all these empty, you know, sort of you know what, what were once German um, Jewish uh, communities and they're gone. They've been killed off, and all they have left is a German soccer team that has a caricature of a Jew. You know, it's that horrible, right. and um, so. And yeah, it's I have gone to a lot of, you know, uh, Washington NFL team protests, and and there there's a lot more um, at the at the Cleveland team game. There were very few people of color there. Um, it was almost entirely white, which is really notable in a city like Cleveland. Right. You know, but at the uh, Washington uh, games, there were I'd say one third of the the fan base were of color. And, and that was difficult to have those families walk by and ignore Native people who were protesting and, um, and ignore their concerns. That is crazy. And I, I could believe that definitely. And I'll actually ask you a question about that here in a few. Now, we also have a team with Native Masketry here yep. in the Portland Winterhawks, the professional hockey team that yep. we have here. Have you protested against the Winterhawks? Do you have... Any stories? Or- yeah, I, you know, I, I haven't as much here because I've been kind of busy and, but I have been asked to talk about it and I have written to the team. And uh, I think that, um, that that is something that here, what's going on in Oregon is very interesting. You know, right now they are, um, they're trying to get rid of mascots out of high schools, you know, out of public high schools. And that's been a really interesting discussion because what they're trying to say is that if they could get one of the nine tribes here in Oregon, the federally recognized tribes, to say it's okay, then they can do it. They can mascot mascot us. But the issue is that the um, the cultures that are being mascoted are not cultures that are here in Oregon. It's Plains Indian culture. You know, my father's tribe and tribes here don't have the right to sign off on mascoting our, our culture. They can sign off on things that are specifically theirs and no one else's, even words, but they can't use things that would um, at all include my culture. I think that um, that would be like asking, you know, a uh, an Italian what they think of the Viking mascot. They don't really care because that's not their culture, you know, and it's the same thing with tribes here in Oregon. This is not really their culture or even my mom's tribe, the Navajo Nation, you know, that uh, what the kind of... Um, the culture you're seeing mascoted is not their culture, but if it was, they would be angry, you know, but since it's not, they don't really care. That, that's the thing is that gets lost too, is that the um, tribes, you know, there's 566 federally recognized tribes and there are so many diverse cultures and um, the culture that is primarily being mascoted is the, um, the Plains Indian culture. And so I think that, like I said, like when all people know is the stereotype, it, it masks our lives. 
in mass our realities. Most most Americans don't even know that we are actually sovereign nations. They think that we're like just you know ethnic groups. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I mean, my husband's tribe actually travels on their own passports, and all tribes could do that. They could issue their own passports wow. because we are actually. I mean, the U.S. government doesn't sign treaties with anyone but other sovereign nations. So treaties are not just special little agreements with tribes. They're international agreements only made between na- between nations. And, and the U.S. Senate does not ratify treaties with just groups of citizens. It only ratifies treaties with other nations. And so the very fact that we have treaties means that we are, you know, it's, but of course we, we pre-exist, our sovereignty pre-exists the treating process with the United States. But, um, and, and tribes have a higher political status than states do. States are not sovereign. You know, the federal government is sovereign, but the states are not sovereign. They're self-governing. They're, they're colonial territories. Right. But, uh, and that's something else people don't realize is that states don't, are actually politically lower than tribes. Shows the truth, but they still won't acknowledge me. And now they're talking this my country, tis of thee. And my people, they went through misery, raped all women, and killed all children. Replaced all the greenery with concrete buildings. And make me feel like I'm less than a man. And make me carry ID to prove who I am. And now they want to be your friend again. Damn, you better run from this That song was called My Land by Whitefoot. Now back to the interview with Jacqueline Keeler. You mentioned high schools, and I believe, is it Sillets Valley? Sillets. Sillets Valley. Yeah, Sillets the tribe. Valley. Yeah, so the schools, there's an issue going on where the schools are pretty much coming to an agreement with the tribe for the warrior to, be, to continue to be yeah. their mascot. You know, I've spoken to both the Siletz Tribal Council members and also to Grand Ron. And um, Siletz, they um, that particular situation is a charter school, which is mostly attended by tribal members. Okay. And so I do think that that's a really different situation because they have control over how the mascot is utilized. It's okay. a primarily Native uh, student population. I think that where the real issue comes to head is when the student population is almost entirely non-Native and the native population or one or two native students have no say over it and um, ends up happening is you have a lot of red face you have a lot of just um you know what, what i call masketry which is the sort of you know the promulgation of stereotypes acted out and and i think in an educational um, situation it's really harmful to native youth native youth are off most native youth don't live on the reservation you know, um, only a small percentage, like 25% of young Native people live on the reservation. So the majority live as minorities amongst minorities in other communities in America. And they don't really, it's not really should not be up to the single Native family in the school to educate everyone else. I mean, imagine 
Right now, there are about 2,000 high schools that have Native mascots. So, you know, when you look at the black community, the black community is about 10 times larger than the Native community right. in this country. Imagine there were 20,000 high schools with black mascots. Yeah. You know, and even if it was and something... We, and we've dealt with that, too, uh, with, like, blackface and things like that. Well, imagine 20,000 high schools yeah. in the country had that, and how much work that would be for the black community. Yeah. How, educating, fighting it. And, and imagine that you're the only black family in the high school. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean. It, that's the that's just the level yeah, of tough. you know burden that's placed on the native um, family, the native community, and and the native student. Right. And, and so I think, and I explained this to the Celeste Tribal Council, but they are um, well. What I understand is that for some of these different tribes, there's the issue of the gaming compacts. Okay. So um, and that also played into Florida and the Seminoles that they feel these tribes feel like they have to play nice with the with the um com- the white communities to get their gaming compacts signed. And so there's n- other elements to it that are not just inclusive to the issue at hand. So Right. So I want to I want to continue. I want to stay on the topic of pretty much the lack of support maybe between oppressed groups amongst each other. You said when you were out in DC there it was about one third of the population or one third of the fans were of color and it was hard for you to see that they really didn't show interest in what you all were protesting how could we come together because obviously within just sport alone you have a lot of movements uh we've obviously seen this dakota access pipeline protests uh you have black lives matter uh you have you have religious protests when it comes to sport. Obviously, Nike recently released their first hijab, but that's taken a lot of protests for them to get to that point. Uh, you have women and sexual assault. How do we all figure out a way to come together? Because we all, although we have different issues, we all feel pretty much the same as far as our passion and the oppression. And we feel pretty much the same that we're oppressing that there's a higher power that is pretty much just abusing us. How do we all come together to support each other? For example, obviously, me being an African-American male, I have as many stereotypes out there of my oppression, but I'm obviously interested now in hearing about the oppression that you and your people go through as Native Americans. How do we all kind of just start bringing things together for the greater good in the future? The near future, preferably, but... Change happens slow sometimes, but just we want to just keep pushing for the greater good. How do we go about that? Yeah. Oh, I wanted to add that. There, I, there's another athlete I heard of who was very active in Dakota Access Pipeline. Where that would be um, Kaepernick. Is that his name? That? Yeah, Colin, Colin yeah. Kaepernick. Yeah, yeah. He um, he donated like fifty thousand dollars to help build a a, um, hi, um, a hospital on the Standing Roxy Reservation. Right. And stuff. So, but um, I would say that for me. It, it all comes down to the recognition of what the system really is. Right. You know, what the system is. I, I've been I'm giving a keynote actually um, at a white privilege conference in Kansas City at the end of the month. And wow. I'm focusing on the whole thing of that the U.S. is still a colony. I think that uh, we're all we're taught this sort of story that the U.S. went from being a colony to being a country with freedom and all this stuff. And I, I think that's a lie. And I, I think that what happened. And and the colony was built on two main pillars. Of course, the issue of um, the extraction of wealth for the one percent, and um, 
And what happened early on in the colonies was that the the white and the white indentured servants and and um, and black folks stolen from Africa um, began to unite to fight against you know the ruling classes there in Virginia. And so what happened was they instituted by this whole thing of racism. This is the origins of this sort of uh, race-based caste system in America and uh, was to divide the, the, the people who shared um, economic interests from each other, you know. So I think that as long as, and then of course the taking of the land, the, uh, the need to deny Native nations rights to the land, uh, and this goes back to the doctrine of discovery, um, which is the papal bull from the 15th century, two papal bulls. And this is actually still the basis of the U.S. Um, claims to the land that it, it occupies, which is that native uh, discovered nations, that only European discovering nations have the right to title of the land. So you have to be European, you have to be Christian, and you have to be discovering. So you can't be from here. And so this is the way they say that our nations don't have title to our land. The minute that the uh, European discovering nation landed there and you know, read out their little thing, branded a tree, planted their flag, that all our title reverted to them. And so this is still the law of the land. This is still constitutional law. And uh, it was as recently quoted as, as recently as you know, 2005, I think, by um, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, in a case against the Oneida uh, Nation. And so this is still active law, and it's completely, I mean, can you imagine them going to any other, I mean, like going to Pakistan saying, you're not, uh, you're not Christian, you're not discovering, you're not European, so you don't have title to your land. And so the fact that our nations here are the only ones that live under that law is, um, is blatant racism, and that it's still active law, it, it shows the, um, the real nature of this country. So I think that by looking at the actual colonial, uh, colonial um, uh, structure and um, addressing it, um, can we really begin to, to, uh, to dismantle it? So I want you to kind of promote your book a little bit. You're the editor of The Edge of Morning, Native Voices Speak for the Bears Ears. Kind of just give us some background information on what that book is all about. Uh, where we can go find that book and purchase the book. Just kind of, yeah, give us some information about that and how it all came about. Yeah, so um, At the Edge of Morning is, it's a book, as I told you, I'm, I'm a Navajo Nation citizen, and Bears Ears National Monument, which was declared by uh, President Obama, is a, um, it's a vast area in southeastern Utah. It's about the size of New Jersey, and it is the place where, Five different, many different nations, but five tribes in particular. That it's their birthplace. It's sort of like a um, a fertile crescent, like from the Middle East. Um, it's here in 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 this country, and and there are these. There's over 110,000 archaeological sites, all kinds of sort of like Mesa Verde, you know, buildings, and and this is where they believe the Navajo people started, the Zuni, the Hopi people, and the Ute. And, and so this is um, very much a, um, a birthplace of, of very significant uh, Southwestern uh, cultures. And so I, so they, but it was being looted. The white communities there are actively looting the archaeological sites. There's very little protection of them. There's mining going on, uh, uranium mining, and just really, um, now they want to do fracking. You know, it's just the typical, you know, they're, um, 
you know, if this was, you know, <laughs> uh, there's just no concern for preserving the history of this world, um, of this of our ancestors. And these sites are, you know, go back 11,000 years. This is, there's a lot of history there. And so I had, I had the honor of working with um, the local um, uh, tribal leaders who developed the National Monument Plan, which is unique in that it includes collaboration, uh, the, includes oversight by the tribes. So the tribes co-manage the National Monument with uh, the United States government. Uh, this is the first time this has ever happened. And uh, so we want to protect it. Of course, Trump has declared war on it. Right. And <laughs> and the, all the Republicans in Utah want to see it you know, gone because right. they want to just mine the heck out of it. And, and so it's, uh, it still needs protecting. And so, um, so I was really happy to put this together and work with a lot of other Navajo you know, activists and scholars and, and elders and uh, to document their stories about the place. And then also other tribes too. We have uh, the former Ute tribal chairwoman and uh, Regina um, White Skunk Lopez. And then also uh, many other leaders. And, and we have a Hopi archaeologist and just giving their perspectives on what that land means. And then I have the last third is Native sacred sites activists from around the country. Right. Um, because I think it's really important to understand how, since we don't have um, carte blanche to protect these places, which are important to us, we have to be very, uh, we have to use a lot of strategies. Right. And this is one strategy that they use to try to preserve it as quickly as possible. Interesting. So where can we get the book? Um, right now it is, um, it, you can get it through my publisher, Tory House Books, and then it will be going live uh, for sale on Amazon on June 6th. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's my mom's birthday, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> well, birthday gift. <laughs> yeah, that'll be it. I'll definitely yeah, yeah. purchase that for. So the last question that I have for you is actually more so in reference to the title of this podcast and we started this last week. I had Casey Chereke, who's the personal trainer of Alan Crabb, on. And I kind of created this question. And it's about rituals, preferably when you wake up in the morning. The title of the show is Wake Up and Win. So when you wake up, do you have anything that you do to pretty much allow you to go out and win a day or to prepare you to go out and win the day and just be progressive? Well, I guess I, um, I drink coffee. I feel too. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, I do, you know, I, um, I do try to pray. I mean, um, in the Navajo way, we pray with cornmeal and okay. corn pollen. You greet the, um, holy people, which are the, um, uh, the beings and they come in, at dawn. And so I try to be up at dawn. I try to be there and be present. And it's sort of, I mean, I guess maybe I was raised a little superstitiously about it, that you had to be there to greet the dawn yeah. and greet the holy people. Otherwise, just to be really terrible. And so I do feel somewhat like this guilt. I have to do it. <laughs> and so I do it. And I, you know, have my cornmeal and and uh, and pray, you know. And then I, I, it definitely makes me feel good about everything I do for the rest of the day. It, it grounds me, you know. And, sure. and the dawn is such a beautiful thing, you know. Definitely, I, I think seeing the dawn every day is really important. Yeah, that's why we asked that question. I, I like I feel like that'll probably be the most diverse question that we have on really? the show because <laughs> obviously we bring we, well we want this show to be diverse. Uh -huh. And we just bring so many different types of guests and I feel like obviously we bring guests who are pushing for something in particular. And I feel like you can get a different answer from so many different people and 
somebody may think about it like, hey, Don is beautiful. Maybe I need to wake up. Yeah. And, well, and even if they do their own particular type of prayer, it just could be their time of peace, yeah. the time of anything, you know what I mean? To just go out and just start their day up. So it's. Well, it's so funny because these things that are my family, I don't think of them as being really very strange. But then when I tell other people, it's like they never heard of it before. But to me, it's it's pretty normal. You know, it's just part of what we do. But I, And I hope that maybe that more Americans will learn about real Native culture right. rather than stereotypes. Because it's really we, interesting. That's why we got you here on the podcast <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah, and being from two very different cultures and having worked with many different tribes, I can tell you that they are amazing. And, and if you don't know them, you're being cheated. You need to get to learn. And uh, it's, it's, I think that's part of being on this continent is learning about those different cultures and what they have to, to give. Absolutely. So, um, do you have anywhere that people, the listeners, could follow you? Social media, your website, where people could follow your work, and yeah, just kind of promote yourself a little bit. Yeah, I um, I, I'm on Twitter. My um, handle is at JF Keeler, and I have a blog called uh, Tioshpaya Now. T i y o s p a y e n o w, and um, and it's uh, that's the Tioshpaya is the word in Dakota for um, a circle of teepees, okay, an encampment, and it was within that that a family would live and be happy, and I, that's my hope is that we could have that today. For sure. And, uh, Anywhere so, else? Um, I'm on Facebook. I have okay. a I have a Facebook page, Jacqueline Keeler. So. Alrighty. And I guess another thing I'd like to um, talk about is the. Um, for some of your listeners, is the uh, Washington Post poll about uh, whether or not the ethnic slur that the Washington NFL team uses uh, is is acceptable or not. And I, I wrote a piece addressing that and really looking at the poll very pretty closely um, at the nation, and that came out in um, May of last year. And but um, it's very difficult um, to um, use a telephone. Um, polling system to get uh, to be able to really poll native people very effectively. One is that many people identify as being native who are actually not enrolled citizens of native nations. And also uh, there's a whole question about, um, you know, how strongly they actually identify as being native or whether they are simply trying to tip the poll by identifying as native. There's really no other group that people actually try to assume the identity of which is a really strange phenomenon. We have this whole issue of pretendianism, people pretending to be Indians. And, um, and the other issue is that there, uh, you know, it's just not phone calling. It's just really not a great way to reach the Native community. And uh, many Native people are, don't have home phones, um, the other traditional phone in the house type of situation. And, uh, and, many of, and our population is really young. It's much younger than the general population in the United States. We have you know, some of the reservations have a um, average life expectancy of you know in the 50s. You know, I mean, pretty. So the the average population is is under 21, which is much younger than the rest of the United States. And um, and so reaching um, that community via um, traditional methods is is not very effective. Right. And when I looked at the polling, actually, that most of the re- respondents were men in their 50s from the South. Right. And there just are not that many Native people in the South, and uh, and certainly not many people in the in their fifties, Native people. Period, right. <laughs> especially men. Yeah. Um, men tend to die younger. So it's it was a very strange poll, and um, and I don't think it was very reflective of the Native community. But I go into it more depth in my article. 
Alrighty, I'm glad I'm glad we got to get that last promo in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, once again, thank you for joining the show, Jackie. And hey, we'll bring you back. You'll be back here. We we definitely okay. want to, you know what I mean, keep this thing going. And as as different news and things come up, I'm definitely a follower of your work. So when there's times that you need to speak about anything, feel free to hit me up, and I'll free, I'll feel free to do the same. And Yeah, just kind of continue this process of progression. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. All right. And to all the listeners out there, you know I would not feel right if I didn't leave you with this message to stay woke and go in.